Welcome to the Bringing Rural Back podcast, where we help you live a more prepared and sustainable life today so that you can have a better tomorrow no matter what. This is your host, Greg Carter, and this is episode number 55. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Hollywood Disasters, part one. But before we do that, let's get some chores done, shall we? I'd like to remind everybody about the Listener Appreciation Contest. Just go to the blog, theruraleconomist.blogspot.com, and there'll be a a checkbox up top, or there'll be a little link at the bottom that says Listener Appreciation. Click on that, fill out the little form. All you got to do is put your email address, your name, and check a little box that says that you'll share the show in some way all on the honor system and then once we get to a thousand subscribers on our feed burner stats for the podcast itself we'll be giving away a $50 Amazon gift card uh, if you have any questions that you would like me to to cover or subjects that you think I should be paying attention to you can send me an email to the rural economist at gmail Com. In fact, several emails are what caused this series. So, and I always respond and I always get back with you one way or another. Now, I'm going to tell the story. I've had, uh, I don't know, several emails over the past little bit asking about the Yellowstone Supervolcano. I'm like, well, that's kind of random. Okay, sure. And then somebody sent me a link to an article about the seismographs being offline in Yellowstone Park. Okay. All right. Gotcha. And uh, did a little bit of research. If the seismographs were offline they aren't anymore um or maybe i'm looking at a different link or something but i was able to pull up the seismic bacteria of the area and it's pretty neat to look at but the a question that was asked in different forms multiple times was was how would we deal with this type of event I'm like well that's pretty cool okay so um, I didn't want to do just one show on just the super volcano so I'm gonna do a show on today's show is gonna be on the super volcano and an asteroid strike because actually their ramifications are quite similar and we're going to be discussing that. And I learned a boatload when I was doing the research for this episode. It's pretty cool. Okay? So, we're going to start with the asteroid. Just cause. Um, the Earth gets hit by stuff all the time. A lot of times it's, you know, no bigger than your hand. A lot of it actually burns up in the atmosphere and never does anything. Occasionally, we'll get something 
you know, the size of a basketball or something, it'll smack. We have had some things that were larger than that. Uh, last time I checked, the only known record of a human being being hit by an asteroid actually took place in Alabama. Lady got hit in her living room or kitchen, I want to say, quite some time ago, so that was interesting. Well, this is one of those grandiose Hollywood disasters. One of these, you know, extinction level events, all the chaos, all of this. And so when I was doing some research, I found out that their effect is actually pretty intense. If you've been listening for any length of time, you know that I very, very, very rarely ever watch television. Um, if I do, it's something that my wife has decided that she likes and, and I like spending time with her. A lot of times she'll be watching TV, I'll be doing research or, or you know, answering emails or whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I, I get some of the overflow, I guess you could say, from the television shows. So, you know, none of this is based on a movie or a TV show or National Geographic or any of that stuff. It's all just the research that I've done. So, if a meteor or an asteroid were to hit the planet, its damage would be determined, obviously, by size and where it hit. Now, um, they believe, there's, there's two primary, uh, and this is actually why I put them together, there's two primary thought processes on why the dinosaurs became extinct. One was a massive ring of volcanoes all erupted at the same time, and the other was an asteroid strike. Okay, so the scientists believe that both of these things can produce the same end result, which is why I've put them together. When an asteroid strikes, if it strikes on the water, there would be a tsunami, which would be, there's a, it's a real complicated equation, um, but there would be a tsunami that would be determined by the size of the asteroid and the depth of the ocean where it struck, which would go out in every single direction from the place that it struck. Now, we've had some tsunamis in recent history. They're very devastating. And for miles inland, everything would be destroyed okay now the water would recede quite quickly but the damage would not go away as quickly because basically you know here in Alabama we've got a lot of farmland down in the, the flats next to the coast and and there's several other places that are like that and most of Florida's like that They've got countless acres of farmland and orchards and, and all of this, which is really close to sea level. And uh, 
you know, where we live right now is 586 feet above sea level. Where my my dad and my mom live is over a thousand feet above sea level. Um, if a tidal wave were to reach where I am, whoo, there's a lot of people dead and there's a lot of cropland destroyed because that ocean water being salty would salt the farmland and it would take years of reclamation to diminish the salt enough for crops to be able to grow again. Now, it wouldn't be like it being saturated for days and days and days and days and days and days and days, but it would still be enough that it would be quite damaging to agriculture in those areas that were hit. That's not even counting all of the cities that, you know, are on the coast and uh, that are in low-lying areas. Now, that's a bad deal. If you're in one of those areas and something like that were to occur, you've really only got two options. Bug out or bend over and kiss your butt goodbye. And that's basically it. Now, actually an ocean strike would not be, might not be as detrimental as a ground strike. When an asteroid hits the ground, it creates obviously a crater because we've got craters all around the world that we can look at and go, man, that's a big hole, you know. But when it hits, all of the soil and all of the dust and dirt and sand and everything else is thrown up into the atmosphere. Now, this is what I found really interesting. They've, most scientists have kind of settled on an asteroid being what destroyed all the dinosaurs. Okay? Dunno. That's what to think. The reason that they think this is apparently all over the world, there's a thin layer of a mineral called iridium. And it's very rare on Earth, but they uh, hypothesize that it's much more common in space jump meteors and asteroids. And for all for this single layer to be so widely dispersed, all at about the same age depth of Earth, they believe that that's what caused the dinosaurs to become extinct. Now, here's where it became very intriguing to me. According to scientists, the impact of all of that dust and stuff in the air is dependent on the type of dust and dirt that's in the air. If it is a very fine particle, then it prevents sunlight from entering our atmosphere. It's basically just bounced back off into space. And the global temperature cools. If they are larger particles, 
then according to scientists, it allows the sunlight in, but it does not allow heat to radiate back out into space, so the global temperature would increase. Okay? You want to talk about global warming, that would be it for real. They don't know which actually occurred. They think it was the cooling part, but they're not certain. If a really large meteor or asteroid were to strike and have a landfall strike, if it struck in the northern hemisphere, unless you've got, and see, they don't really know, they guesstimate how long the dirt and stuff would stay in the air. That would depend on rain and season and all of that because every time it rains, it rot washes some of that stuff out. You know, we, here in the south, we pray for rain in the springtime to flush out some of the pollen. So every time that it rained and every, every day that went by, the global temperature would be slowly modulating back towards normal. So we could go a year, we could go two years, we could go five years with a dramatic climate change each year getting a little better but I mean it could be it could be devastating that, that could be all she wrote for all of us if it struck in the northern hemisphere the southern hemisphere would still be impacted but it wouldn't be near as bad due to the prevailing winds and it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting the way that it happens because you have to watch the jet stream the way that it dips and moves and everything like that now in hurricane season it is not uncommon for a hurricane or a tropical depression or a low pressure system to start off of the coast in Africa make it all the way through the Atlantic and then wind up in the northern hemisphere and impact the United States, the Caribbean, you know, um, Mexico, Central America. So, I mean, there is a, a connection between the northern and southern hemisphere, but it's not like it would be in the hemisphere in which it struck. And again, it would be purely dependent on size of the impact which would determine whether or not you could get out of it alive. Period. How would you try to prepare for it? Uh... I mean, technically, if you had two years worth of food 
and had all kinds of seeds and stuff, you might be able to make it through it. You might be able to start growing stuff again as soon as you got out. But there would be severely limited livestock or wild game if there would be any at all. Um, it, it, and it wouldn't matter if it got too hot or too cold. You know, if you're talking about a, a, a global climate change of a single zone, a single agricultural zone, it's not that big a deal. If you're talking about a global climate change of two zones or more, that's a massive deal stuff that I grow where I am right now would no longer grow. Um, you'd have to completely relearn everything. Um, it would be a major challenge. Now, let's go to a volcano. Volcanoes actually do the exact same thing. And with the size of the particles. Now, Yellowstone is what they call a super volcano. I mean, think about it. You got Old Faithful, you got all those hot springs, you got all this stuff over there. So there is a lot of energy under the surface. And if it were to blow, it would be a really bad deal. Now, I have to put it in the show notes because I wrote it down and I've, I've lost my notes. There was a volcano that erupted that created a year without a summer. Massive famine, lots of death, people starving to death. When people starve to death, then disease takes over. Both of these apply to both situations. And people struggled, but humanity survived. I can't help but think that that would be the case as well for either one of these events, barring something that was so cataclysmic that it, you know, put enough dust and sand and ash in the air that it took say five years to clear. If it took five years to clear, I don't know if anybody can survive it. No matter what you got. I wouldn't care if you had ten years worth of food stored. Just the sheer temperature change you might freeze to death or boil to death. So don't mean to be all doom and gloom, but that's just kind of the truth. Now, if it weren't too bad, I'm of the opinion that you should have food storage. All the time, regardless, you should have some food storage. Now, a bare minimum, an absolute minimum, should be 10 days. 10 days isn't going to help you a lot with one of these type of events. If you're wanting to be prepared for one of these type of events, you're going to need, you know, six months to a year, depending upon the size of the event, 
and what time it strikes. On the other hand, I found it very interesting that there are peoples who live on volcanic islands and they they thrive because volcanic soil is so rich. And if you think about it, it makes sense. It's full of all these minerals, it's full of all this stuff because it comes up from the center of the earth and people will actually take the risks of living in the shadow of a volcano because when they're just doing everything they can to survive, then that rich soil helps them thrive much better. And I actually found it intriguing that uh, you can actually buy volcanic ash as a soil amendment. So if it's not horrible, it can actually make things better after the initial impact's over. Now, I'm going to tell a little bit of my age here, and a lot of you are going to remember this, a lot of you are not. In 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted. It actually exploded. An eruption is normally preceded by earthquakes. For Mount St. Helens, it was a 5.1 on the Richter scale, which actually caused the height of the mountain to shrink quite a bit. All right, so it exploded, and it exploded in, and I'm not meaning to belittle anything, but it exploded in a spectacular fashion, killed 55 people, cost multiple millions dollars worth of economic damage, and I remember scientists trying to predict how long it would take for anything to grow back on Mount St. Helens. Well, on the wet side of the mountain, the very next year, there were wildflowers and grasses and everything started growing. The very next year, on the dry side of the mountain, however, there's still just bar barely any grasses that have started to grow. So, even a small one has a massive impact to the area. Now, this is, as I was doing my research, I wanted to find out how much the global temperature changed after the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Now, Mount St. Helens would be popcorn in comparison to the Yellowstone supervolcano, but I found out that after Mount St. Helens, the global climate cooled by one hundredth of one degree Celsius average. Okay. So what that tells us is if Yellowstone were to erupt, 
it would have to be 100 times larger an eruption than Mount St. Helens to raise the global, to raise or cool the global temperature by even a single degree Celsius or centigrade. It would have to be like 700 times larger in order for us to have an agricultural zone shift based on temperatures. Am I saying that it can't happen? Absolutely not. In fact, if this old world keeps rocking on, eventually it will happen. I believe that. Am I saying that an asteroid strike won't happen? <laughs> Heck no. We've got proof that it's happened before. It'll happen again. Don't know when. It'll happen again. Livestock, gardening, all of the things that sustain us. We need to build in redundancies and we need to, to work to be as self-sustainable as possible. That's, a, that's always going to be my, my preaching point on personal living. Let's try to build, um, oh Lord, what's the word? Ah, I hate when that happens. Resilience. Try to build resilience in your life. I believe everybody ought to store food. I really do. I believe everybody ought to store water. Really do. There's no way to store enough water for a, a typical family to survive a year without a drop of external inputs. But I mean, you could store enough food to last a year. My grandparents did it all the time. My grandfather's passed away. My grandmother still got enough vegetable soup in the basement to probably last all of us through a small asteroid impact anyway. That's not much of an exaggeration. Discussing these things are good. makes us, it forces us to think. Dwelling on them constantly, not so good. We have to, we have to work with ourselves. We have to train ourselves. We have to learn. We have to share our knowledge. And we have to be prepared. Because here's the deal. If you put up six months worth of food or whatever you're comfortable with and you go to work tomorrow and they tell you you don't have a job anymore, then you really don't have to worry about food for six months. 
Now, here in the U.S., you know, we've got unemployment compensation, which is is quite laughable. But, you know, we pay a tax. Now, there'll be people going, no, your employer pays it. No, you pay it. If you didn't earn them enough money for them to pay it, they wouldn't pay it and you wouldn't be employed. So you pay it. You pay a premium for unemployment insurance. But if even if you're just getting whatever little penance they give you, but you've got six months worth of food, then you can do okay at least for six months while you're finding other employment. And if that doesn't happen, then you're prepared for some major stuff hitting too. We're gonna, let me see how long we got there. Okay, yeah. We're gonna wrap up right here. Next episode, we're gonna be talking about nuclear war and pandemic. And uh, so, we're going to cover all of the, the Hollywood disasters because folks wanted me to cover it. And uh, we're going to go from there. If you build resilience into your life, you will be able to weather whatever comes at you better than if you don't. Now, I know there are folks that will argue, well, why you want to do that? You're only going to live three more weeks longer than everybody else. When you look at the sum totality of everything, the statistical probability, the odds of one of those extinction level events is quite low. but you're going to eat tomorrow. And you've probably already eaten today. By taking some control of, of what happens to yourself and how you react to situations, you take a little bit of power away from the corporations and away from the crooked politicians and you put it back in your own hands because let's just be honest nobody cares about the survival of your family as much as you do I hope you enjoyed it I hope you learned something I know I sure did doing the research on it uh, look forward to talking to you again if you enjoyed it consider giving us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you found us. Step by step, we're bringing rural back. Bye-bye.